This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. Last week, for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the signs of the times. And last week I shared with you these five classic signs that we see happening all around us. The regathering of Israel into their own land, that process began at the end of the last century and was formalized on May 14th, 1948, and still exists today. Uh, the second great sign, of course, is the surging apostasy, is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks this defection from the Christian faith, this group of people who at one time claimed to be followers of Christ but have now abandoned that for whatever reason. We see the desire for a coming Middle East peace, and it seems like every president and every administration from day one since 1948 has come up with some sort of Middle East peace plan that has always been rejected. But the focus, of course, is to somehow have peace in the Middle East that we know in eschatology will be ratified and affirmed by the Antichrist. That seven-year peace treaty will be what Daniel calls the 70th week. We see the reuniting of the Roman Empire, and again, the question is whether that's the Western Roman Empire that we're familiar with, Germany and France and England and stuff of that nature, or the Eastern Roman Empire, which is made up primarily of Muslim nations, such as Turkey and Syria and others, or is it a combination of both, and we see that happening before us, and of course, the push for globalism. But we've been talking about the great apostasy, and as I began last week and want to finish up this week, the question is, how can you protect yourself from deception? We looked last week in, at Jesus' preaching, uh, in beginning in Matthew chapter 24, where he laid out the signs of the times, the, the primary traits of the end times, and he talked about wars and rumors of wars once. He talks about pestilence and illnesses and, and viruses and stuff of that nature once. He talked about the persecution of Christians once. He talked about deception four times. He began it by talking about deception. Before I even begin telling you this, don't let anybody deceive you. He talks about false Christ and false prophets twice. The idea that the major thrust of the Antichrist will be the opposite of Christ, a rebellion against Christ, he will be inundated with deception. So much so, as I shared with you last week, and I've shared with you previously, that Jesus said the deception will be so great that if it was possible, if God's saving power doesn't keep the elect connected to him, that even you and I would be deceived. Even the Billy Grahams and the Apostle Pauls and the Johns and James and Peters would be deceived. It's that great a deception. We get a glimpse of that in Revelation chapter 13 and following with the signs from heaven. But deception is the key here. How do you and how do I protect ourselves from deception? And I need to, I need to emphasize this 
strongly today. It's more than memorizing and cognitively believing historical facts. It's more than having a PhD in systematic theology or writing a thousand-page volume of systematic theology and knowing all the answers to all the tough questions. It's more than that. That's, that's cognitive. It's an experience that you have with him. It's, it's, it's a life-changing event. As when we were preaching through the book of Romans, and we were in Romans chapter 8, going through this, this kind of chain of salvation where it begins with God's foreknowledge and he predestined us to be conformed to the image of Christ and all he predestined were called and all he called were justified when we become aware of our salvation. We also looked at some of the other steps that were there, such as regeneration and such as conversion and such as the appropriation of faith. And unless there's a um, a regeneration that takes place where the old man now is, is moved over and the new man of Christ now comes in, where the old man dies and we're now raised again in the image of Christ, unless there's regeneration, unless we have an experience with God, we're not saved no matter how much theology we have memorized. The experience that we have with him, stronger than our belief in truth cognitively or our understanding of theology, the belief we have in him must be personal. It must be first person. It cannot be based on the faith of another. You know, we tell our children things and they believe, they believe us or they believe what we tell them because they believe us. But that kind of faith will not protect you during the great deception. Your faith can't be based on the fact that, you know, my mom was a real spiritual person and she believed, and since she believed, I know it's true because of her faith. It has to be your faith. You know, you and I will all stand alone before the cross of Christ. It has to be first person personal. And not only that, but the problem with with most Christians today, and even in my own life, is when I ask you, what are some tens spiritually? What are your mountaintop experiences with the Lord? Every time you list one, it's a time that you've experienced God. And I experienced God three years ago. And then before that, I don't know, um, I guess it was in, you know, like, I don't know, 2001 when this event happened and God was really real to me. Well, how about prior to, to, to that? I don't know, probably 1989. And then, of course, it's when I got saved. So you've been a Christian for 40 years, and you've experienced God four times? Yeah, these are these mountaintop experiences in our life. But the idea of the Christian life with the Holy Spirit living within us is these experiences with God are almost habitual. They're continual. When when is the last time you had a profound experience with God? Ah, this morning before I came to church. Last night before I went to bed. You know, when I, when I was having the devotion with my kids or my wife or, or just privately, all the prayer time I had yesterday. I mean, that's, that's what God wants. That's what God expects. That's the normal Christian life. And we have to, to have that kind of relationship to him as we see this deception coming because otherwise we will be ill-prepared. I mean, I've been talking to you for the last couple of months about being a faith prepper. Preparing your faith 
for what's going to happen. Is there enough faith in you to stand against the deception? Is there enough evidence of your Christian life to convict you of being a Christian if you had to give a a charge, defend a charge against that in front of a court? The idea is for us to, to hear him and embrace him and experience him. Think about this. We all claim that Christianity is not a religion, but Christianity is a relationship. True? But if you notice that most of us, the relationship is one-sided. We do all the talking. He does all the listening. We don't do any listening because we don't really think he's going to talk. I'm trying to think what it would be like to, if if Karen and I, when we, you know, I, I first asked her out on a date and you know, we first started falling in love, if she was unable to speak at all or communicate at all. I mean, I would be sharing stuff on going on with me, and I would ask her to share what's going on in her life. How do you feel about this? You know, what would you like for dinner on the menu? What makes you happy? What could I get you as a gift? Nothing. Just absolutely nothing. So everything was one-sided. I mean, she would know me intimately, would she not? But how well would I know her? How, what kind of relationship can we have if only one side does the talking and one side does all the listening? Now, what you will discover is God is talking all the time. All the time. It's just for some reason we don't hear him or we don't listen to him or we expect him to speak to us in ways that maybe he chooses not to. Maybe he's doing stuff to, to change our faith. But the key is, how do I learn to hear his voice? How, how can I know when God is speaking to me? I love this. This is, this is the gospel in a nutshell. This is really the goal of our Christian life. It's the end of John chapter, or it's in John chapter 17, which is the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, where he's spending three chapters just communicating his final words to his disciples. And here's what he says. He says, and this is eternal life. This is what it's all about. Well, what? That they, you and I, may know, gnosko, you, God the Father. They may know you. They may know you by experience. They may know you as, as I know Karen, not, not like we supposedly know using justice as example, George Washington. I don't know anything about George Washington. I don't know how tall he was. I don't know what he likes to eat for dinner. I just know historical facts about George Washington. I don't know anything about him personally, but I do you and I do my wife. This is eternal life that you may know you, the only true God and me, Christ, whom you have sent. Yes, absolutely. We all agree that's the goal of this relationship, to know God the Father experientially, passionately, and to know Jesus Christ. How? Honestly, how? How do we do that? How do we know not not 1492, not Edo, not by studying God's word and understanding truths about him and memorizing doctrinal statements and confessions of faith. Now, not that way, like we've all been taught. But how do we know with our heart, how do we know by experience the one true God? And it's really simple. You know someone by experience 
by having an experience with them. True? That's why whenever we have a, a ladies' retreat, try to get all the ladies to go. Because the ladies that don't go miss an experience. And so all the ladies go, and so they're there. Or we have a, or we have a mission trip or a youth event. We want all the teenagers to go because when they go, they have a shared experience, and they, they kind of bond together. And then when they all come back, there's this unit. There's this group of people that have shared this experience, and they're talking about what happened here and how fun it was here, and like when we used to go to Pigeon Forge, and they're all kind of bonded together. And if you didn't go, you didn't share that experience. And you, for somehow, some reason, you seem kind of disconnected because they're all about that experience. And how do we, how do we know God experientially is by having experiences with Him or literally by having a lifetime of experiences with Him rather than this Oh man, I remember it was really great, 1989, and, and oh, uh, uh, 1996, it was fantastic. Then I went on this mission trip with God, and He spoke to me in such a profound way in 2004. And then He answered this incredible prayer for me in 2012, and I'm hoping to have another mountaintop experience with Him again. They're not supposed to be mountaintop experiences. That's compared to all of us who live in the valley. They're supposed to be what our life is like with him, to, to hear him and to know him, because that is what eternal life is all about. We go back to the Old Testament, and we have a tendency of never asking, for me, the tough and obvious questions. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Got the trust part and the intensity of that. And lean not on your own understanding. We've broken that verse down and seen exactly what all those words mean. In all your ways, everything inclusive, acknowledge him. And in the middle of the word knowledge is yada, which is the Hebrew word for gnosko. And all your ways, by experience and favor, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. That's the promise. And we say, yes, if I do the first three, the last one's mine. Okay. Well, let's ask a practical question. How does he do that? How does God direct your paths? I mean, what does he do? What methods of direction does he use? He can use anything. He can use circumstances, but then sometimes circumstances can be confusing and circumstances may or may not be an accurate indication of, of what God wants. Sometimes he can speak to us through a principle in his word. Sometimes, sometimes you could have a vision. Sometimes a prophet could come and speak to you. Sometimes an, an angel has known to visit people and communicate messages to them. But how does he primarily direct your paths? I, 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 I don't know. That's why I don't really do the first three things here. Because if I do, I haven't figured out how to hear his voice. I haven't really figured out how, how he can direct my paths. These are practical questions that have to be answered for us to have the kind of faith to be sustained during dark times. The key, of course... Do not falling for falsehood and deception is an experience with God. Somebody could say a lie about my wife, and if you didn't know her, you might believe it. 
Yeah, I don't know Karen that well, but gosh, it's really terrible what she's done, and, and I just can't imagine she would do those things. But for those of you who know her, by experience, you would say, no way, that's a lie. I know her. I know how she thinks. I know how she acts. I know her, her love for Christ and her love for others and her love for her family. I mean, that's a flat lie because that's absolutely, totally, 100% contrary to the nature of her that I've learned by experience. The key to not falling prey to false doctrines and apostasies and, and all the stuff that's swirling around today is you know the character of God by experience. Relationships. My relationship with him and him relationship with me includes talking and listening it, all the time. Most of our, our times with the Lord is like this. I ask, I talk. I beg, sometimes I demand, and if God doesn't answer, I get mad. So what about him? What about his desires? What, what does he say? Does he ever talk to us personally? Well, yes, he does. In 1989, in 1996, in 2004, in t- or, or 2004 and 2012, and, but I really don't expect it to happen anytime soon. Why? What have we lost here? What what are we waiting on? And if God does speak to us personally, I mean, how does he do that? What is that experience like? And how often does that happen? And how can I learn to hear his voice, to to understand what he's saying to me, to have that, that kind of intimacy with him that allows me to experience him on a deep level, like, like my Lord who lives inside of me, so I will know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not just doctrinally, but I will know that he never changes and he loves me and that he can always be trusted. How does that happen? How do we hear from God? The First Corinthians chapter 2 passage that Justice read today. We talked a little bit about it last week, and we talked about the wisdom of God that we have that is greater than the wisdom of this world, that the world can't even accept what we know, and God has chosen to put to nothing the wisdom of this world by revealing his wisdom to us, this wisdom that that we can speak and this wisdom that we can help others with. Look what this verse says. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, which are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God has ordained before the ages. Why did you do that, God? For our glory. It's something that he wants to give to us, to reveal to us, so we can proclaim in this lost and dying world, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Practical questions. How do we receive this wisdom from God that we are to speak? Well, it's found in his word. Okay. Then we, if we wanted it that bad, all of us would have this thing memorized. We'd, we'd be focusing on it all the time, but we don't. Which means that for some reason, the wisdom of God found in his word is not 
somehow being transplanted from his word into us, because if it did, it'd be an incredible experience that we couldn't wait to share with others. The fault, of course, is not with his word. The fault must be that somehow we haven't figured out how to hear his voice, even through his word. I mean, how specifically is it communicated to us? And however God decides to communicate that wisdom to us, does it change your life? Think about it. There are some people who have heard God speak to them in an audible voice. Roberta got up here and shared a story with you a couple weeks ago about the soup deal. Do you remember? And God obviously spoke to her and said, don't look down. Do you remember? And every time she shares that story, it moves her emotionally. There's been like two or three times in my life that I've heard God speak to me in like an audible, audible voice. I could share those with you now. They're, they're just like they happened to me yesterday, but only two or three. And, and every time that happens, that God speaks to us or reveals something to us, even through his word, the fact is they become mountaintop experiences in our life. But how many of those do we have? And are we living on past mountaintop experiences, or should we learn to be able to hear his voice at all times? Because hearing God's voice and having communicate his wisdom to us, it should be a life-changing experience. Let me tell you what happened this week. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, God revealed himself to me in such a profound way that when, when I say, does anybody want to share anything, we're going, yes! But instead, most of us, in churches I've been in my entire life are like this. This week's been okay. But it's just like last week and a week before and a week before and a week before and a month before and a year before. But that kind of faith, we're going to get deceived. It's not. We can't. If you can't live on the faith of another, you also can't exist on the faith of your past three or four times when you've had these huge experiences with him. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Okay, explain to me how God actually reveals these things to us that he has prepared for us who love him. How does he? Re- how has he revealed those things to you? As a child of God, how does your father communicate to you? I mean, has he spoken to you? Do, could you recognize his voice? Do you, do you, do you have that kind of relationship with him? Or is it more of a, Lord, uh, I know I'm supposed to pray, so let me tell you how I'm feeling. Let me tell you what's going on in my life. Let me ask you to bless or help or minister to or heal these people. Let me uh, um, tell you how much I love you and got to go. Day after day, week after week, year after year, I never hear back from him. And that's not much of a relationship, is it? But if we did hear from him, Almost daily. I mean, every time we got together and and talked to him, it was a a true relationship, a a two-sided conversation. I think our faith would soar. In John chapter 10, um, Jesus, go ahead and turn to it. 
Jesus is teaching about being the good shepherd. And these are some of the most profound passages regarding the doctrine of election. He's always asked that question. Did they, you know, become his sheep by hearing his voice, or did they hear his voice because they were already his sheep? But, but Jesus lays out for us the relationship between him, the shepherd, and us, the sheep. Look what he says here. To him, this is the good shepherd, the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. One of the characteristics of sheep, as Jesus is saying, is they will hear the voice of the shepherd. This is just verse 3. Here's verse 4 and 5. And he brings out his own sheep, and he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. Why do the sheep follow him? For they know. They know his voice. They've heard his voice. They recognize his voice because he, the shepherd, Christ, is talking to them. Yet they will by no means be deceived. They will by no means fall prey to the apostasy. They will by no means follow a stranger. Why? But they will flee from him because they do not know the voice of a stranger. They only know the voice of their shepherd, of Christ. Verse 27, the classic election question here. My sheep hear my voice. Wow. We always, again, twist that into, you know, did they hear his voice and be, because they became his sheep, or did they hear his voice because they were already his sheep? But one of the key attributes of the shepherd and the sheep is that the sheep hear Christ's voice. By the time we get to verse number 27, if you'll notice, he's not talking in imagery about shepherds and doorkeepers. It's not personal. My, capital, sheep, Jesus, sheep, hear my Christ voice. And I, Christ, know, gnosko them, and they follow me, Christ. Do you hear his voice? I mean, how does that happen? We can follow the example of Jesus here. Let me just give you a couple of verses. Here's, here's how Jesus had this relationship with his father. It's what he says in John 5, 19. And Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. But what he sees the father do. I'm in the presence of the father and I'm watching him. And I'm watching him intently. And I'm looking at everything that he does. What he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Jesus is learning how to respond. He's learning how to live. He's learning what to do and say by what he sees the father doing. And what my father does, I'm seeing that, is what I want to do. The father's teaching him. There's no verbal communication here. It seems like it's, it's just, he's just watching and following. Until we get to John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Now we've gone from just visual 
to now Jesus is saying, I'm learning from the Father. And that learning is visual. That learning, if you look at the word here, it is, it is by verbal communication. That, that image, that, that teaching is by example. That teaching is I'm holding your hands and showing you how to do it. The same way we teach our kids things. So Jesus is sees the Father, and now he's being taught by the Father, and what the Father is teaching me to do, I want to do. And then we get to John chapter 12. For I have not spoken on my own authority, Jesus says, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I, what I should say and what I should speak. So the very things that I'm saying and speaking are what the Father has told me, commanded me to do. I mean, even in the life of Christ, there's a presupposed relationship between God and the Father, and that Jesus is unable to really do anything he's supposed to be doing until he can learn to hear his Father's voice. And if Christ has learned to hear his Father's voice, to see the Father, to be taught by the Father, to hear his commands, how much more should we? True? Okay. Why is this important? Because the key to any intimacy is communication. When I'm counseling marriage people, or married people who are having problems in their marriage, uh, it usually always boils down to a lack of communication. You didn't tell me you felt that way. Yes, I did tell you I felt that way, but you didn't hear what I said. Well, yeah, I, well, then you needed to tell me again. Well, I shouldn't have to tell you anymore. One time's enough. You should be able to read my mind. I can't read your mind. You're saying one thing, I'm hearing another. Maybe I'm not even responding back to you. So you're assuming what I'm thinking. And it's all based on faulty communication. Intimacy comes when you share hearts and you share feelings and you share passions and you communicate. And it's exactly the same way with the Lord. True intimacy comes with him when we can hear his voice. Because we know he can hear ours. But the key is to have a reciprocal relationship with him. How is that done? Let me, let me just give you a couple examples here. And then we'll draw this to a close. Um, I'm looking at uh, the book of Numbers. I don't know why. I'm just studying the book of Numbers right now. And I'm shocked at how much print there is on building the tabernacle. In Numbers 3 and 4 is what I looked at uh, earlier this week. All it talks about is the various tribes of, of, of the various sons of, not sons of Levi, but again, sons of Le- people in the tribe of Levi, but not necessarily priests, who were in charge of packing up and moving the tabernacle. This group of people is in charge of packing up the wood and the physical structure. This part takes care of all the linens and the animal skins and drapes and all that kind of stuff. And this group of people takes care of the utensils in the holy place in the courtyard in the Holy of Holies. And in these, in these two chapters where it just talks about what they're supposed to be doing, the priests go in and they wrap this stuff up and, and these other, don't you look. You're, don't you? If you look in at the at the table of showbread, you will die. If somebody who is not from the tribe of Levi comes in and wants to help out, you will die. And over and over again, it talked about the fact that the penalty for kind of doing it our own way, having good intentions, is death. It's kind of like I told Karen about this. You're sitting at the dinner table, 
And then, uh, you know, the, one of the sons of Levi says, oh, wait, listen, I've got to, I've got to leave at 8 o'clock. I'm running a little late right now because my group is going and we're, we're moving the tabernacle tomorrow and I've got to prepare it. And I say, well, let me help you out. I'll come with you. If you do, you die. I mean, there are certain requirements that are necessary to approach things that are holy. People have always said that uh, was my whole life, that God is speaking all the time, and what we have to do is tune ourselves into his voice, kind of like with a radio. Turn on the radio, and I got nothing. I got nothing but static, and if I turn the dial, all of a sudden, I, um, you know, if I'm, I wanted to listen to 91.9, if I'm at 89.9, nothing comes through. If I'm at 91.3, it's probably some other radio station, but I have to turn my dial in to exactly where that frequency is, 91.9, and I'm listening to the music I want to. So God is speaking all the time. And how in the world do I turn my dial of my spirit in to be able to understand exactly what he's saying? How does that happen? I want to give you just a small example here of the, um, of the tabernacle. One of the reasons why I'm going through the book of, one of the reasons I'm going through the book of Numbers is the fact that I was awed when I discovered that God spends more time talking about his tabernacle, how to build it, how to respond to it, how to take care of it, how to break it down, how to move it, than he does any other subject, if you just go by print and words, in Scripture. Talks about that more than he does prophecy of the end times. There's more in there than almost anything in the Old Testament. And it's, it's obviously incredibly important to him. Because it shows us, to them it was physical, but it shows us how to approach God. How to approach a holy God. We don't view God as holy much today because we come whenever we want. We, you know, if, if you're, if, if Donald Trump was going to stand up here, for example, and give a speech at 1030, we wouldn't blow in here at 1045. It's highly disrespectful. We would be ashamed to do that. And yet, we don't have any problem doing that when it comes to God. If if our boss says, hey, I need you, you know, Friday to come to this meeting or Saturday to do this kind of stuff, we would just, and I ain't going to do that. It's no big deal. You know, I want to do something else today. I don't feel like going. We would never do that to somebody that we truly respect. But when it comes to God, because we've, and Christ, because we've dumbed him down so much in our Laodicean culture in which we live, that's that, oh, it's, it's, he's not holy, he's, he, he just, he will be happy with whatever I give him. And none of that is true. It's one of the reasons why our frequencies aren't dialed into him. And we're going to do it our way. We're, you know, we're rich and wealthy and need nothing. And the Lord says, don't you realize you're not even tuned into my dial? You are wretched and, and naked and poor, as he talks about in Revelation chapter 3. And he gives us this example of how they had to approach God, which is probably a pretty good indicator of how we need to approach God. This is the tabernacle. The, um, the outer court area was 150 feet this way and 75 feet this way. And it was positioned in a particular way always. As a matter of fact, the entrance was always on the east. Why? 
Well, because when God laid out the various tribes, around each four corners, he would lay out three tribes, would camp here, three tribes here, three tribes here, and three tribes here. And for some reason, these three tribes, the, the Insigna tribe, or the tribe that led that off, was the tribe of Judah. And so Judah's tribe is here where the gate is, the door is, to be able to enter into the tabernacle. Judah, of course, means praise. It means worship. Because when we come into the presence of God, we want to turn in to his frequency. That frequency is found by praise and worship. Not by depression, not by fear, not by unforgiveness, but through praise and worship. And that doesn't necessarily mean only what we do on Sunday. So you've got in the tabernacle here, you've got a door. Everybody has to enter this way. This outside area is known as the outer court. And spiritually, it corresponds to our body and our flesh. It corresponds to the area that most of us struggle with when it comes to sin. In the actual tabernacle area, it's divided up into two sections. This, of course, is what's known as the holy place. And the other one is known as the holy of holies. The holy place is 15 by 30, and the holy of holies is pretty much 15 by 15. Priests are allowed into this area. But no one is allowed into the Holy of Holies except the high priest only one time a year on the Day of Atonement when he goes in and makes atonement with sacrifice for the sins of the people. Only one time. The key in worshiping in the tabernacle is to have access to the Holy of Holies because only in the Holies of Holies do you have the Ark of the Covenant. Only there. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, was this this uh, box that was covered with gold, and it had these two cherubim on the side whose, whose wings went up and touched each other. You had this separate piece. The lid was a separate piece from the ark, which was solid gold, and it was called the Bema Seat, and it's where the blood was sprinkled. It's where, according to their understanding, this is where God met with man right here. And the holy place, which is allowed just priests who could go in there maybe one time in their lifetime, that's what where Zacharias was when all of a sudden doing his once-in-a-lifetime deal of offering incense on the altar of incense where the angel spoke to him and told him about the birth of John the Baptist. Remember? And it's separated by a veil. You don't go beyond the veil. Over the years, the veil grew because they would add different linen to it. And the veil is what separated the people from the throne of God, from the Holy of Holies. Jesus said when he came, of course, this veil was split. And the book of Hebrews says that we have a high priest now that allows us direct access into the Holy of Holies. We're not separated by a veil anymore because the Holy Spirit lives with us. It's one of the joys of being a believer that we have direct access to God on our own. True? But not to take that callously or haphazardly, there were still steps then and there are still steps now that allow us to turn our dial to hear the word of God. When a priest would come, the first thing that would happen is they would be confronted with a bronze altar. And the priest would come in from this way, from the tribe here, or passing through the tribe of Judah into the gate, time of praise, they would be confronted by this bronze altar, and at the bronze altar, a priest would make sacrifice for their own sins. This bronze altar represents Christ for us. He has already 
cleansed us from our sins. He's already provided the sacrifice, but there's an understanding and a confession of our sins that must take place before we approach God according to the tabernacle model. Make sense? Do you know what's next? It's the bronze laver. This is a big pool of water. As a matter of fact, the bottom of this was uh, was cut pieces of, of mirrors. And so you could actually look into the water and see a reflection of your face. And it was where the, the priest would wash, and they would sanctify themselves, and they would remove the defilement from their life. In other words, we're approaching God, and we confess our sins at the bronze altar. And once we confess our sins, his next statement is, what are you prepared to do about those sins that you've confessed? What kind of repentance? What kind of actions follow that? What, what kind of image will I, will you see when you look into the bronze, uh, the bronze labor and see your reflection? Are you sanctified? Are you restored relationships? What have you done to approach a holy God? Next, you would enter into the holy place. This represents more of your, um, more of your soul. This was your spirit communicates with God. This would be like your soul, your the heart, the, the place of your mind, will, and emotion. And of course, the outer court would be more of your body. And the first thing you're confronted with is this table of showbread. There's this table. There's these 12 loaves. These 12 loaves are baked, and they're replaced every... Um, every Sabbath, and the idea is you have a choice. Jesus comes. He's the bread of life. Am I or am I not going to partake of him? It's where your will enters into it. How committed I am, am I to have a relationship with the Lord that I can approach him and I can turn my dial in such a way that I can hear his voice at all times? Across from that is the menorah. It's a seven branch lampstand. It's the only light that we find in the holy place, and it's filled with oil. And oil, of course, represents the Holy Spirit, and it's illuminating. It's our mind, the mind of Christ, understanding the truth of God, how I want to approach him, what I'm willing to surrender to him. Finally, you have this altar of incense right before the the um, the Holy of Holies. Incense, of course, represents the uh, with prayers. It also represents your emotions. You know, one of the things that I've discovered with, with my own life in which most of us, so we have no problem approaching God here at the bronze altar. I will confess my sins. All right, Lord, I, I'm sorry for the things I've done. Please forgive me my sins. You know, I know I've offended you and I've hurt you. And, and Lord, if there's anything keeping me from a deeper relationship with you, will you let me know what they are? And he does. And he wants me to do something about them, to be washed from that filth, to make those, those whatever changes I need to make in my life, the sanctification process to be more like him. And sometimes we struggle here because those are painful. I've already committed my word to it. I've already, I, I don't want to mess up this relationship. It's going to hurt me financially if I do something like that. And so we balk here. But even if we kind of bluff our way through here, when we get into the holy place, I have a choice. Do I want to partake of the, of the showbread? Do I truly want Christ to be the bread of life? Do I want truly to, Christ to be the light of the world in my life? Do I want to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? And am I, am I willing to take my own emotions and my own feelings and my own rights at the altar of incense and give those to him as a fragrant offering to him of my total surrender? Most believers say no. And then we wonder why 
we haven't turned that dial. We wonder why, for some reason, Christ doesn't speak to us like he should at all times. Because here, we know best. Here, I'm willing to eat some of the bread, but not all of the bread, because some of the bread's going to, I don't want to, because it's going to change my life too much. Here, I want to have the mind of Christ. I want to submit my my spirit to you, my mind to you, but, but, but not in everything, because I still have things that I believe or I think are important that I want to do. I mean, can't I hold on to anything of my old life? And here, my emotions, my feelings, my wants, my desires, my everything about me, I'm, I'm, I'm to offer them to you so that this fragrant incense aroma comes up and is pleasing to you, I'm not sure if entering the Holy of Holies is worth it. But it is. And it's vital for you and I who want to hear his voice. A relationship takes two people communicating. And when, when, when our relationship with him is he's communicated to me six times in the last 40 years, and I communicate with him not as much as I used to because I get tired of these one-handed conversations, which is just me asking for stuff. When we can have that kind of relationship that I've turned into his voice and I hear him speak to me about everything, he's directing my paths, he's, he's changing my heart, and I had a real question, I didn't know what to do, and I prayed, and God spoke to me, and he told me exactly what I needed to know, and it's revolutionized my entire life, and I'm so excited about just sharing it with people because it's real. I've experienced him. Not just today, but I also experienced him yesterday and last week and last month. And my life is an habitual experience with him because I'm taking the steps necessary to approach the holy king of kings and lord of lords. How do we do that? We're going to have the Lord's Supper. And again, this is... um, a time that we're to fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with each other. So as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want you just to spend a moment reflecting on the steps, according just to the tabernacle model, reflecting on the steps necessary to be able to have fellowship and intimacy with God himself, according to the way that he's prescribed out chapter after chapter after chapter in the Old Testament. We say, I don't have to do that anymore because I have direct access to the Holy of Holies according to the book of Hebrews. True. But do you hear from him? And if you don't hear from him, then whatever you're doing ain't working. And we need to maybe say that maybe it's just not my callousness or my haphazardness that he wants. But maybe he wants devotion. Maybe he wants a sacrifice. Maybe, maybe he wants me to truly yield myself to him. Again, by the model that we have here. Maybe, maybe entering into the Holy of Holies is truly better than just being in the holy place. And I can promise you it's better than being stuck in the outer court and having this distant relationship with him. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, to um, just take a moment or two. I'm going to pray. 
Let's take a moment or two. And if you have a hunger to really hear his voice, we're going to be talking about this a little bit next week too, to hear his voice, to tune into his dial, to... If you've had a mountaintop experience with him before, to have another one today. And if you have one today, then don't, don't go to bed tomorrow night until we have another one tomorrow night. And then pretty soon mountaintop experiences won't be mountaintop experiences anymore. They'll just be experiences. They're only mountaintop because we live in a valley. But I want you to reflect on maybe what's lacking in your devotion to him. You're approaching him and you're surrendering to him. For me, the hard part is not the confession of sins. It's the next statement he asks, well, what are you going to do about that? I've forgiven you of those sins. Now what? It's kind of like the woman caught in the act of adultery. Your sins have been forgiven. I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Ooh, how do I do that? Well, come into the holy place, and I will tell you, because it has to do with your will. Are you willing to embrace me as the bread of life? There's 12 loaves here. Or are you allow, You want to have the mind of Christ here? There's the menorah, which represents the Holy Spirit. Or are you willing to give up all your emotions and your feelings and your wants and your desires at the altar of incense? If you do, then we turn into that dial and him speaking to us, I believe, will be as commonplace as it was when God spoke to Moses. I mean, if you just look at the book of Numbers, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, and there's three chapters. I mean, he must be writing that stuff down as fast as he could go. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It's not just a vague impression. And it's a word. It's a word. Sometimes it's a still, small voice. Paul, when he was really struggling, that Jesus appeared to him in his jail cell, and don't be afraid. I have many more here. and You will testify to me before uh, kings like I promised you. God, thank you, God. I can do anything just hearing your voice again. It's a key. It's a key to the spiritual life is knowing him experientially. So if you would, let me pray. Take a moment or two, and then uh, when you're ready to try, that's all I'm asking you to do. When you're ready to just tell God that you're ready. Then come up and partake of the Lord's Supper. You can take it back to your your seat um, and just uh, do it on your own um, because this is really just between you and the Lord. And then after everybody's had an opportunity to partake who would like to, then I'll close in prayer. Amen? Let's pray.